When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning! I'm stuck like a fucking baby! Goo goo gaga! Shades on! Leave me gone! Sure is quiet outside. Would be a shame if somebody had to blow some leaves. Help! All my neighbors! It's 6 a.m. on a Saturday, you fuckwad. Is this really necessary? No. Then why are you doing it? Because fuck you, that's why. Good morning, Sweet World, and welcome to the No Dumps Podcast on the Athletic Network. It's Tuesday, June 15th. I'm J.E. Skeets rolling with the homie Tass Mellis. What's up, Tass? What's up, everybody? Hey, we got my top shot hot boy, Trey Kirby. Ayo! 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 The international man of mystery <laughs> taking it to the max. He forgot to even say Ayo, and uh. he's still laughing over a leaf blower clip. Leolis. JD, I'm so glad. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. A million people have sent that to us. I'm glad you pulled it out today. That's maybe my favorite cold open so far. That's incredible. Oh, that's bold. That's bold. <laughs> yes. Uh, last, not least, certainly making the magic happen, is JD. Hello. There he is. And here we are. Yeah, a lot of people tagging us in that clip yeah, uh, on the social to. media channels. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was good. I actually purposely didn't watch it. I was like, oh, I thought it was about leaf blowers. And I was like, well, we're going to see this, so I'm not going to even click on it. And it was even better than I thought it was. Is that really necessary? (laughs) No! (laughs) Shout out to the stream team for joining us live right now on YouTube. Smash that like button, leave your comments, and uh, subscribe to No Dunks on YouTube if you haven't already. Keep sending in your questions and comments for the next Beach Step and Podcast. Email them in, nodunks at theathletic.com, or tweet them in at nodunksinc. We're hitting the beach tomorrow. So you still have a good day or so to get your cues and comments in. Tass, how's that batch looking for tomorrow's Beach Devon podcast? Do we need some bangers still from the people, or are we good? No, we're good. We are good. The lawn has been mowed and trimmed and looking crispy. Leaf blower put away. Just sit back and relax and enjoy the show tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, let's get our leaf blowers out on the beach. (laughs) Cause some havoc. Throwing sand around. (laughs) Might be the worst place you could have a leaf blower at the beach. Throwing sand in everybody's meals. You're chewing on granules for the rest of the day. Sign me up. Yeah, if that means we're all going to wear goggles for our show tomorrow <laughs> protect our eyes, I'm down. Okay, cool. Uh, finally, grab your No Dunks merch. Immaculate items available over at nodunks.com. We got hoodies, t-shirts, shorts. We got coffee mugs. Go grab your No Dunks gear over at nodunks.com. All right, fun show lined up today. We're going to have Tim Cato on today's pod to discuss his athletic article on the Mavericks front office drama. This was making waves on Twitter yesterday. So much so, in fact, that Mark Cuban just retweeted it with total bullshit. Whoa, Cubes! Oh my goodness. So we'll talk to Tim about this article and, uh, and all of his reporting and what's going on there, sort of behind the scenes. We'll also run through the all-defensive teams. Those were announced on NBA TV last night. We'll look, we'll look ahead to tonight's uh, pivotal Game 5 in Brooklyn. Uh, some late-breaking news that James Harden has been uh, upgraded to doubtful 
for this one. Kyrie's a no-go in Game 5. Harden, doubtful, maybe is uh, going to play in this. We'll see. But let's start by recapping last night's games. Uh, first game was fantastic. Trey Young leading the Hawks. And a rally to get past the Sixers late in the fourth there. With Embiid hurting Tass, a uh, rough second half for him, but let's get into it. Uh, the Hawks tie this thing up at two games apiece. What are your big takeaways? Yeah, Hawks down double digits at half, and then we're able to fight back, mainly because Joel Embiid couldn't hit a shot. I, I think we got to start there, because Joel Embiid, runner-up for MVP, looked like, I can't, I can't even describe what he looked like, really. He was just forcing every shot that came his way. He was looking for fouls. He ended 0 for 12 in the second half. He just couldn't find the rim whatsoever, and this still was a really, really tight game down the stretch. Last few minutes, co-all-star Ben Simmons didn't shoot in the last few minutes, and Tobias Harris, their other sort of supposed, supposed to be their, uh, the guy who is able to penetrate and score when those guys don't do it. He didn't take a shot the last few minutes, and yeah, the Hawks were able to overcome. I think if Joel Embiid hits one stinky shot, then the Sixers probably win this game. He just kept forcing it and forcing it and forcing it. He looked such like a different player. It it sort of reminded me of 2019. The Sixers went to seven games with the Toronto Raptors, and before every game, Embiid was listed as questionable because he had an illness. It was really strange. It was game after game after game. Uh, He had this illness so supposed illness where he was hurt but what illness you know lasts for days on days on days and he came out and he had uh you know this uh, this sort of uh impactful series because he is impactful when he's on the floor but he scored 11 12 13 16 17 in, in five of those games and th- that's what this reminded me of he obviously wasn't just sick two years ago he was in pain there was an injury and coming into this series The meniscus was slightly torn. I I think it's starting to bother him as the series goes on. He said after the game that he's not going to be 100% this series. And I think that's what the Hawks have going for them in this series. If Embiid is going to face a little bit of pressure, you know, those those doubles that come uh, and he's going to get rid of the ball or he's going to force it, he's not looking good. The Hawks could you know, stretch the series uh, to seven games, and then we'll see there. I, I think I think the Sixers are still the favorite in this series uh, because, as I said, if Joel Embiid hits one shot in, in the second half, he hits a, if he's two for 12, I think they win this game. He goes four of 20. Now they go home, and everybody should be a little bit better there. But uh, I, I just, I think, you know, you got to think long-term here, the prospects. I'm, I'm sorry to talk about the Sixers first, but, again, they go into Atlanta. It's a one-possession game with their uh, MVP runner-up looking the way he did, where he's obviously not right. Something going on there, you know, the knee. It, it, it just could be that body not being able to hold up over an entire season. And, and this is that was the question for Joel Embiid coming into this playoffs. He's never had to carry a team this way. He just hasn't. Two years ago, he had Jimmy Butler beside him. Last year, you know, they, they were out in the first round with, with Ben Simmons out. This is, this is new territory for him. There was a reason the Sixers signed him to that contract where he didn't get paid if he had injuries in, in, his, in his legs uh, because he's had those for a long time, and it just seems like it's catching up to him right now. So let's go to the Hawks. You know, I, I'm done railing on uh, on Joel Embiid because the Hawks did play a good game. But but I do think you got to start with uh, the MVP runner-up not looking like that. Yeah, I thought he was going to puke. I tweeted that. He looked so either fatigued 
or in pain or a combo of both, uh, Trey. I'm talking about Embiid, of course, uh, in that second half. He went to the locker room in the second quarter, right? Uh, and, you know, you're like, uh-oh, that's never a good sign, but that happens a lot with him. But then he came out and hit some big shot. He had that beautiful, like, turnaround, hit a three, and you're like, okay. And then, yeah, just going the 0 for 12. And there was a part where he was at the free throw line, Lee, he was like trying to buy time at the free throw line. Like he was doing like that walking around in the paint, like just almost like to, to get his wind or to feel a little bit better. I don't know. And, you know, he didn't really explain much after the game outside of like, well, yeah, I'm, I've got something wrong with my knee, but you know, whatever the sort of like, no excuses. I can be better. We got to be better. But yeah, what a comeback. They were up 18. This looked like it was over. And if they mm-hmm. win that game, it looks like the series is over probably in five back in Philly. And suddenly it's two, two. Um, but yeah, let's put him beat aside for a second. The Hawks come back. Who impressed you most in that second half rally, Lily? John Collins. I yep. thought he had some really, really special moments in that second half and really impactful ones as well because he had two huge putback dunks. And if you watch those, just how far he came from, he both times he started on the three-point line and the Sixers simply didn't pay attention to him mm-hmm. and he got those dunks. And those are those sort of like life-injecting plays. You know, the crowd gets into it, his teammates get into it. And then later on, he had a huge block on Tobias Harris, which would have made it a six-point game because Tobias Harris was going for a dunk. And for a team that had really been struggling with their offense, that's the sort of easy basket they were hoping to get but he couldn't do that and John Collins was all right there for that one but the biggest play I think was a crucial offensive rebound about 220 to go they're down by four the Hawks he keeps the possession alive really good hustle offensive rebound then he goes to the corner they find him I think it's Trey Young drills him in the corner and he hits that three and it brings him back to within one and then even on that last play where Joel Embiid was a really well designed play I thought from Doc Rivers Joel Embiid goes in we know he's struggling gets a high percentage look going to the basket and John Collins comes over doesn't doesn't touch the ball but his presence is there and he's just up there contesting a shot so yeah Trey Young no, no question he was a star hit some floaters had uh, 18 assists in this game which yeah. was a little surprising um, but I actually thought John Collins's impact on this game at crucial times was uh, was huge for yeah. them because they got looks in that fourth quarter this game you know it was close and, 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 and both teams sort of struggled but Gallinari had a wide open shot Bogdanovic missed one uh, Trey Young had one of his uh, you know deep three that can't rimmed out then he was hunting for a foul that can't one missed out as well so the Hawks themselves could have almost put this one a little bit more distance but they couldn't sort of take the advantage there but I thought in some really crucial moments John Collins was just fantastic for his team last night and uh, really had a, had his fingerprints all over that fourth quarter oh my god yeah I was actually pissed off with John Collins because we talked about us going down to the fortress for game three and man were they missing something like that in that game three in that second half when they were down like any sort of like Big dunk, big block, uh, you know, something to get the crowd going, some energy, because that stuff's infectious. Oh and yeah, you're, and you're right. Instead of game three, it happened here in game four, probably saving the Hawks season. Fourteen and twelve for for Collins, uh, and you went through all the big plays there, Lee, perfectly. Uh, Trey, what did you see in this one? Um, you know, I'm sure you uh, would applaud Collins for bringing some energy there, but. You perked up when Lee dropped uh, Ice Trey there and his 18 assists because he didn't shoot the ball that well, but man, was he setting up guys. Yeah, 18 assists, and the huge other number to me was that the Hawks only had four turnovers as a team. That's pretty incredible because I thought the only way that the Hawks are going to be able to beat the Sixers again in this series is if they shoot the shit out of the ball. And, you know, they shot the ball fine last night, but Mm -hmm. I think they only ended up making... Uh, what, 12 three-pointers? Like, that's not a crazy no. number of three-pointers. They shot 30% from three, but Trey Young was just finding anybody who was open. They were getting some buckets, and yeah, Collins' uh, energy in the third quarter into the fourth quarter was 
uh, infectious is exactly the right word. And it even saved uh, the night for skeets, I thought. You came through with a humongously great tweet of JC saving the Hawks. <laughs> You know, because the Pope had an MLK jersey right. early in the season. And I thought that was great because earlier in the night you were saying, man, good thing we didn't go down to the fortress tonight. Oh, God, that first, <laughs> that first start of this game was brutal. It was, yeah, it was so, I know, but you, you so kind of grish this one here, Skeets. You got to remember <laughs> that the first half leads. It's, true. it's not just the first half. You got to play the second half here. But, yeah, I thought the Embiid stuff uh, was very weird. 0 for 12 in the second half. And like you're saying, Tass, it just felt like – he was trying to go to the free throw line the whole time. I even think that last miss, the lane is basically there for Embiid, right? He should have dunked it. That should have been a dunk, and that probably is a dunk in April uh, or, you know, whenever Joel Embiid is feeling his healthiest. That was a lot like Patrick Ewing missing in Game 7, uh, 1995, had a wide-open finger roll. He bricked it off, and uh, obviously the Knicks didn't win that series. Same thing with Embiid. Like, that should have been a bucket. He was open, man. Like, and that's a bucket for most of the season for Embiid, but he just didn't have the legs. He didn't have the explosion. He said he didn't have it going. He knew in the first half. The stuff with uh, Elton Brand was pretty weird because, like you're saying, Embiid went back to the locker room in the second quarter. Stephanie Reddy seemed to be worried, but she tracked down Elton Brand and saw him smiling behind his mask, and apparently everything was all good, except as we saw in the second half. Not everything was all good. 0 for 12. So why didn't Tobias Harris shoot the ball at all in yeah. the fourth quarter? Two attempts. I would have liked to see yeah. him try and get something going since we knew Embiid was just flailing out there trying to go to the line. Yeah, that was very puzzling to see who was getting the shots in the fourth quarter. And yeah, Simmons didn't shoot the last few minutes. The shots went to Seth Curry and Furkan Korkmaz around Joel Embiid, who, yeah, was looking to get to the line, I guess, to rest uh, because he knew his legs weren't there. Uh, he, he was just trying to get superstar MVP runner-up type calls, you know, like I, I, I think that's what it was. His legs aren't right. It's, uh, it, it was just strange to go from a decent first half, uh, yeah. and then the legs just went. Uh, something just went, you know, it went from four of eight in the first half to oh of twelve in, in the second half. But that's that that is similar to what we have seen in the past. Uh, and, and yeah, Tobias just needed to step up. And then the Joel Embiid story isn't as much of a story uh, in this one at all. Uh, him and Simmons just kind of disappeared in that fourth quarter offense-wise. What do you yeah, think, think of uh, Simmons not even being on the floor at the end there, Lily? when they, they're down three, you know, you, you got to push it. That is the fastest guy you've got on your team, obviously the most athletic I guess the concern is, well, Nate McMillan just say might just say wrap him up, and uh, yeah. they need a three. I mean, that's already a strategy, and especially maybe more so with Simmons. But what did you think of that? Uh, that's, I get it. I get it. If you're thinking McMillan's going to wrap him up and foul him, and then you have no chance probably. But oh man, you would have liked him pushing it instead of Shake Milton. We'll tell you that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Simmons for the free throw line—that's obviously where he struggled. He went one for five again there last night, um, and the look on his face was kind of like, man, this is. This is, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be pulled off the court because I can't make my free throws. So, but Doc Rivers, I think, was like, we can't afford to have him get fouled either because he's just not being able to knock down free throws and he needs to improve in that area. So it's a huge call for the coach to say to your best or second best player, you can't be on the court on offense. Yeah. You know, sometimes you see sometimes guys who are not great defensively get yeah. uh, get tra- um, subbed out. But for a guy to not be on there offensively is bad because you think Simmons is like, well, if I get the ball, I'm going to attack and, and try to get to the lane. But the Hawks are like, if you come in, you're getting fouled. You're going to the free throw line. And, and Doc Rivers just didn't want to real, basically see his player go to the free throw line and clunk at least one of those free throws because uh, 
that's, I think, what Doc Rivers was thinking. And I think, look, I think the Sixers probably got a little complacent in this game too. When they built that first half lead, it was huge. And it was like the series is basically, it felt like it was an, a, a series ending game last night, even though it would have only been 3-1. Mm-hmm. And they came out in that second half and they were flat and their energy was uh, off, uh, you know, and, and of course it started there with Embiid. But yeah, that is, um, yeah, that, that that's not, not a good look for Ben Simmons that he can't be on the court in that crucial moment in a, in a potential, you know, uh, series swinging game like that. He's on the bench because he can't hit his free throws. He was yeah. so good in game three and so aggressive in game three that it really stands out when he's not. And I yeah. think that's a huge reason that Trey Young had 18 assists last night, too. Like he wasn't feeling the defense as much as he had in games two and three, which was the huge change for the Sixers, putting Ben Simmons on him and the size was bothering Trey Young. But he was just masterful last night, operating and finding all of the open uh, the open shooters and the open players for dunks. He had some great alley-oops. It was just great stuff um, from Trey Young. But Ben Simmons honestly made it easy on him by not playing as hard as he can, not playing as well as he did in games two and three. Yeah, Young was uh, amazing down the stretch. He either scored or assisted on the Hawks' final 15 points. Uh, and, you know, an instrumental in that 7-0 run there in the final couple of minutes. That pass to Collins where he went in. Drew all the defenders and then just whipped that wraparound uh, dime to the corner was, oh, my God, oh, chef's kiss. Lee, I don't know if that very solid play is that too sexy. <laughs> it's a little bit of both, but he he was awesome. I mean, yeah, back to back to the Sixers over a second, though. Simmons and Harris definitely let down and beat last night. Like he's been a monster the entire series. I don't know what the hell happened if the knee flared up again, just pure exhaustion something else going off the floor. I don't know with Embiid, but he obviously wasn't himself. We're all agreeing with that. That's when you need your secondary third guys, your other sort of like all-stars or borderline all-stars to like, come on, step up, carry the load here, help him out. He's done all the heavy lifting for the rest of this thing. And they didn't in both of those guys. I think Simmons and Harris are to blame uh, for their no-shows there in, in, uh, in supporting and being tasks. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, definitely. I, the good thing is from the Hawks' uh, perspective is that uh, Trey Young still hasn't found his shot that he lost after game one. I mean, he's just been a little bit, you know, Ice Trey has been a little ice cold. You know, he couldn't find his, uh, mm-hmm. his shot. So, yeah, setting guys up, doing what he could to, uh, to make this uh, a Hawks victory. But, you know, he missed 18 of his 26 shots. So that, that's something that he goes, you know, into, uh, into Philly with and thinks, you know, if I, if I find my flow a little bit, he's probably going to look for his a little bit at the beginning of the game. Uh, to be able to help his guys in a different way in the fourth quarter. He's got to get hot to win on the road. Uh, he's got to be uh, a better shooter. And so that's, uh, that's a positive for the Atlanta Hawks, e- even though you know, this one went down to the wire. It was like a game of attrition out there, that 23-18 fourth quarter, uh, who is just going to make enough shots. And uh, he did what he had to do to give his team the W. That's for sure. Got everybody involved out there and... Uh, yeah, it was great for them, I think, just like uh, an emotional boost to get John Collins going because it has mm-hmm. been Trey, Trey and the Bogdan show uh, for much of this uh, this playoffs and, and this series. And uh, the Kevin Herter insertion to the starting lineup, finally it happened over mm-hmm. Solomon Hill. And, uh, yeah, that, now they've got guys feeling good anyways. And if Trey can find his shots, then, then they definitely have a chance in Philly. So a few uh, questions and notes before we move on to the other game. Lee, I got to ask you, and I don't want us to get us fighting again because that really upsets people when mom and dad fight. Uh, but Ben Simmons called for a flagrant one foul on Collins there uh, I, uh, on the sort of the breakaway jam. Came in pretty hot, and he, and he got the flagrant one with about what, three minutes to go in the third quarter. 
How do you feel about that one uh, and the official, especially involving an Australian that you like? <laughs> oh, that's it. I own, I'm biased. Anything Australians do is always perfect. <laughs> yeah. They're right. I've never criticised an Australian ever. Uh, I think they got the call right again. I think it was a hard playoff foul. Simmons was going to stop him from getting a dunk or a layup or whatever. Yep. Uh, now, he got it just right. If Collins is in the air, there's no question that's a flagrant too. If you take a guy out when he's elevated, but he gets him just as he's still on the ground there. Uh, it was did a good you notice what he did immediately after the foul? Yeah, yeah, too? yeah, yeah. He, he went over to him, yep. and John Collins acknowledged that Sorry. as well. Hey. Yeah, yep. and, and and that you know I think there's a there's just such a difference though between those two right, fouls. Fair. One is a legit hard fair playoff foul. You know, like the guy the guy was just saying, I'm not giving you a layup here, and I think that's the big difference. This is not the other end of the court. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I know, didn't have but any another point I was making with Jokic is he didn't do himself any favors after the hard foul. Yeah, possibly. If he, do, possibly, if he approaches but, it a little differently, I think he maybe yeah. stays in that game. But anyway, yeah. but I, but I don't think uh, I certainly didn't see anyone thinking that was a, a flagrant two last night. I think no. the referees. I think everyone sort of acknowledged, like you know, there's no easy baskets uh, in a tight playoff game like that. Simmons got him. He acknowledged it. He doesn't. He didn't try to act as if uh, he wasn't uh, trying to foul him. He got him. And, and Colin stayed on his feet as well. So it wasn't like he whacked him and sent him sprawling into the crowd. So uh, I thought they got that call right. Mm. Must have been a good apology too, because I thought John Collins still wanted to throw down when he got up. He was pretty angry. Yeah. But then Ben Simmons was like, hey, man, I didn't mean it. He's like, okay. John all Collins right, all nice. right. I'll let, yeah. yeah, it was, it was a, maybe that was Ben Simmons' best, uh, best move last night because he was very aggressive going for that, uh, that flagrant foul and then a very aggressive apology, and maybe that saved him an ejection. I don't know what happened. But, yeah, that was a flagrant one. He smacked him. But it's weird because, I don't know, that does feel like a little bit more of a dangerous play to me, body checking a guy who's guy's going up for a layup rather than just smacking at a ball on the other side of the court. But... I don't know. Thought they should have both been flagrant ones, but uh, I don't know. It was a. Uh, that's kind of when you knew that the that the Hawks were looking good because it felt like the Philadelphia 76ers were a little bit rattled on that play. Yeah, it's still it's still a big part of it is all about the landing and what happens. Yeah. You know, after the hit, that all that's always the case with with these extracurriculars. If John Collins, you know, does more than just a double axle and lands perfectly on his foot, <laughs> like if he actually hits the deck. Shout out to Brian. It's a Orser. totally, a totally different. We're still shutting out Brian Orser thirty years ago. <laughs> I loved, ago, I loved to shout out Brian Orser, eighty-eight Calgary Olympics. Hell yeah, man! Uh, yeah, if he if he falls flat like a, a figure skater who's fallen flat on his face before. You got one of those skates? Well, I mean, no. The, the thing, if once you say Brian <laughs> Orser, who's the other Brian that immediately comes to mind? Bortana. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, gold medal winner. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Falling flat totally. on her face? I don't know. Did Elvis Stoichel ever come up short? You know? <laughs> yeah, he was small. Final? Yeah. He was, yeah. He was pretty small. impressive, though. Uh, yeah, no. Anyway, I think they got it right. We're all agreeing with that with the flagrant one. Um, Lee, have you looked into uh, Game 6 tickets? I was tweeting at you, SRO, are we going back down to the Fortune? By all accounts, <laughs> that was maybe like the loudest the Atlanta Arena had ever been. I saw some people like Neek Bird Days and like uh, when um, the Celtics and Hawks got into it in a series with like Zaza Pachulia was involved, I think against wow. like a Garnett. Like that's what it was popping off to. But it was loud on the broadcast and we knew people that were there last night. They were like, it, that building was going insane. Again, I'm just like pissed off we went to game three instead of game four because it did seem like obviously a much more entertaining game and the crowd was going crazy. But what is game six looking like? Uh, no standing rooms on sale yet, mm. but they usually don't go on until a little bit later. But uh, listen, there's a there's a watch party. Do you want to go down and watch game five? Down <laughs> oh, <at the> Fortress? <laughs> well, <laughs> nah, nah, I don't want to do that. No, no. no. So we'll see. Yeah, but Friday night again, that's perfect. That's the perfect night for watching basketball. So uh, <laughs> 
Friday uh, night, the perfect night yeah. for watching yeah. basketball. Why yeah, is it better than any other night? Because everyone's the end of the week. Everyone's excited. <laughs> it's a great 7.30 tip-off. It's the weekend coming. You know, you can always... Uh, it's not a school night, you know? I mean, it's like school's out right now anyway, but uh, it's just a great night to go down and everyone's having fun. Wasn't and, it a great well, night, even though they lost? for I mean. the show, too, means you don't have to be taking notes while you're watching the oh, game. Yeah, you can just yeah. have your big tall boy yeah. there. What, what were you drinking? A Modelo? I can't remember what you were no, drinking. Peroni. Are you oh, you, you, got, you guys on the Peronis, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, dumped yeah. that other Michelob or whatever that trash was and got into the Peronis. <laughs> Modelo, my friend. Oh, yeah, Modelo. Okay, Modelo's okay. It's okay. As long as it's not... Uh, but, because, but that's because. a classic Lielis again. Like the bar is like one foot from us. Goes over to it. Uh, oh, do you have any Peroni? No. Oh, okay, I'm not gonna get a Modelo. You then. started then drinking you, Peroni though. Uh, I was, I, you went and got it. Yeah, it was fantastic. No, I didn't. Oh, who Tass got it? it for you? Oh, Tass, thank you, man. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for that Peroni. Um, Mike, micro bubbles. Everybody loves a micro bubble. Mm, well, they're you know all beer at an arenas. I was going to say hey, fantastic, hey, listen, but it's listen. just overpriced. What we do have to do, though, is get there early because uh, standing room, that, that plum spot yeah. was already taken when we got you guys were there like 45 minutes before tip-off and yeah, there was yeah. already a couple of bros there. So yeah. we've got to get there early. Okay. I was there 90 minutes before tip-off, but I was taking in the scenes. There's a lineup outside the arena 90 minutes before tip-off. That's how either one, Hawks fans are excited for basketball, or two, People just need things to do, yeah. <laughs> like stand outside an arena. I haven't stood outside an arena in like a year and a half. I'm going to go hang outside Must the hot good. All right, game Did six go. down at the Fortress. We know we're getting that at the very least. Okay, let's go to the other game from last night. Uh, Kawhi and Paul George each scored 31. Clippers tied this series with the Jazz. Two games apiece. Uh, Lily, this one was, I mean, look, it fell over at the half, if we're being honest, especially after the Kawhi dunk. Um Jazz, what, they get as close as, I don't know, 13 maybe? It never felt like the Clippers were in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But what were your takeaways from this? Well, yeah, you say the first half. I mean, often in the NBA, the first quarter is sort of the least important. But last night's game was pretty much over after that first quarter. And I think this was an even more decisive victory than game three. Basically, a continuation from that where the Clippers pulled away in the fourth. This time, they just destroyed the Jazz in that first quarter. And Quinn Snyder went, Greg Popovich called his first timeout two minutes into the game. And even then, you could sort of feel like the Jazz are just not ready for this game. They weren't, uh, they weren't, they just didn't bring the energy. Uh, And even when he did call that timeout, it got out to 29 points in the second quarter. That is just an embarrassment for the Jazz. You know, for a team that's got fantastic offense and a fantastic defense, just giving up everything at one end and not being able to score at the other. It was really bad and it was look it was the Clippers stars who led the way again and I'll get to Kawhi in just a sec because he was brilliant but for all the slander playoff P has gotten he's been awesome in the last two games and, and really the last three he had a bit of a bad shooting night in game one uh, but the last three games he's been much better and last night 31 points on really efficient shooting hit the threes got to the line and I just thought he took really smart shots the threes, when they were open off a screen, he took those. Mid-rangers, if they were there, and he sort of slithers into the lane the way that he does that and opens up. And look, uh, Joe Ingles, again, I'm going to have to say something bad about an Australian. He's oh, shot, wow. believe it Ooh. or not. Joe Ingles, we know, you know, loves to play the mental games there with Paul George and get into his head. But physically, he's way too slow to guard him on the perimeter. And a couple of times, Paul George just said, okay, I'm just going into lane. You know, like we saw with Trey Young on Danny Green in the, in the first game of the Sixers series, he just walks past and then he can decide, okay, I've got a mid-ranger here. Or he was passing the ball really well last night. But either way, he kind of got whatever he wanted. And then Kawhi, you know, who was defended well by Bogdanovich in the first two games, he's basically decided since then, listen, I'm much better as an offensive player than he is and whatever the Jazz are throwing at me defensively because O'Neal had a go at him last night, Clarkson and Bogdanovich got some time on as well. 
He's deciding, right, I can beat this perimeter defender and get to that mid-range if I want it before Gobert or Favors can come out so he gets a, he gets a pretty much uncontested shot there. Or he was stepping back into the three and he also got to the free throw line uh, 14 times, I think it was last night. Um, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are, are in control of this series right now. I mean, the Jazz remain favorite because they have home court advantage here, but I've seen the two stars really step up. And, and again, a lot of credit has to go to those two, but also Ty Lue. They've been down 0-2 in their first round series. They got out of that. They were down 0-2 in this series. And now they've, you know, they've kind of swung momentum their way. Game five is is massive in this series. And uh, if you're pivotal, the Clippers, pivotal. I would say pivotal, yeah. <laughs> Some would say that, yeah. But if I you're would, the Clippers, you've I'm got to feel like pivotal. we have kind of found a way here to uh, to penetrate and break down this offense, uh, this, excuse me, this defense from the Jazz. They gave up 132 points in game three and then last night I think it was only 116 but it was way more uh, meaningful in the sense that this game was certainly over by halftime if it wasn't over by the first quarter so I have to say I've been really impressed with what the Clippers have done and Ty Lue basically said these are my eight or nine guys I'm going with and that's it um, and he's uh, he's sort of coached this team well to get back into this position after again being down 0-2 in a series. Yeah, Tass, what do you think? How badly do the Jazz need a guy like Mike Conley back in the mix here? And uh, I don't know what his status is for Game 5 or moving forward in this series, but they could use a little uh, jolt there to help out Mitchell right now. Yeah, no doubt. They need uh, another ball handler because the Clippers are ready to guard. If you just watch them, uh, especially now that they've gone with essentially a point guard and four wings out there, no center to start. They are ready to switch. I don't think there's a team that talks more on defense. They are chatties out there because they're switching everything, and that's mm-hmm. uh, really taken Rudy Gobert out of the way, uh, out of the game offensively. He had one point midway through the third quarter, uh, but he's not going to take anybody down low and dominate them. Uh, and then he got it going a little bit with the pick and roll uh, from Joe Ingles that they, they just kind of found uh, a little bit. They, they need to to go inside with this switching defense that is in front of everybody. Uh, They're doing a really, really good job. And they're taking away those twos because they're so quick. This is a game that the Jazz win the three-point battle. They hit more threes, uh, but the the Clippers are doing such a good job of taking away everything inside, really helping uh, on Donovan Mitchell, even though Donovan Mitchell got his again because he is that talented. Uh, But yeah, the the kudos got to go to Ty Lue for, for deciding that uh, you know, we can win with uh, uh, Reggie Jackson at the point and then, you know, four switchers in Kawhi, Paul George, Marcus Morris, and Nicola Batum yeah. who uh, have no problem stepping up and hitting big shots. They, they are all stepping into their shots. And, yeah, 118 points may not have been enough to beat a regular season jazz team, but when you're playing uh, defense like this and you get, um, you know, multiple threes from from Marcus Morris, uh, and then the bench comes through the way it's coming through. The Clippers, yeah, I, I think they're the favorite, even though they're on the road. They're playing like uh, the better team, no doubt. Yeah, they need, they desperately need Conley to just to break up that defense and to be able yeah. to get to the rim. Yeah, Clippers more... have been in control of this series basically since the second half of Game 2, even though the Jazz got the win. It was more stake for the Clippers last night, and yeah, kudos to Ty Lue, but honestly, kudos to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Back-to-back games with both of them having 30. Then, like you're saying, Tass, you throw in five threes from Marcus Morris, a pretty solid shooting performance from the Clippers, all things considered. You can't give up all three. That's what I said after Game 3. You can't have a 30-point game, a 30-point game, and good shooting from the role players. I was told the Jazz were a good defensive team. But this is looking easy for the Clippers right now because Kawhi Leonard has taken it to another level. Another massive dunk last night. So big of a dunk that Joel Embiid saw it in his (laughs) press conference and couldn't resist commenting on it. 
But Kawhi Leonard doesn't have social media, so Avica Zubats had to tell him about Joel Embiid seeing his dunk during his press conference. Everything's getting around. Kawhi now has probably the two best dunks in the postseason, both after being down 0-2. Well, I guess the second one, I guess it was game two uh, against the Mavericks that he had his first dunk on Kleba, but... Kawhi looks like he has really turned it into Terminator mode right here. Um, You know, Bogdanovich had some success in games one and two of this series, and that has not been the case at this point. Jazz got to score inside. I'm with you, Tess. They got to do something besides just shoot three-pointers and rely on Donovan Mitchell here. I would have liked to see a little bit more Ingles and Gobert in the pick and roll, but like you're saying, Lee, Paul George was kind of torching Joe Ingles, so I don't know where you're at. Conley helps big time. Moves Jordan Clarkson down a little bit. In the pecking order, somebody else who can get the driving kicks going. But, yeah, uh, yeah, the Clippers, shout out to Alex Wong. When the Clippers get down 0-2, they turn into the 96 Bulls for whatever reason. (laughs) They're suddenly amazing. Maybe this was the key. They should have never got up 3-1 last year. Mm. Yeah, uh, and and just Morris, back to him. He is a massive X factor for the Clippers and in these playoffs. He's... He's 16 of 27, so 60% basically on three pointers during the wins for the Clips, and then 7 of 33 from from downtown, 21% in the five losses. Uh, it sure helps, like when all eyes are on the two stars in PG and Kawhi, uh, to have a guy out there like him that can he can catch fire, and then he starts letting it go. When he sees one or two go in, Lee, that guy's like, I'm shooting the next one, and and fair on him because uh, he's a bit of a streaky shooter that way. So he's a huge X factor. Then good win. This one's tied at two games apiece, just like the Hawks uh, uh, Sixers series. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with Conley. You're right, TK. They could use him driving in there, the little floater game that we know he loves. It can hit, and then just setting guys up too. Um, just uh, and defensively, Mike Conley, you know, mm-hmm. at 100 percent health at least, is is fantastic on the perimeter, and they could use some of that right now. So we will see. Okay, we got to get to our guests. Let's take a quick break though to hear from our sponsors. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right, let's bring in today's guest. We've uh, kept him waiting long enough. Tim Cato is a staff writer for The Athletic covering the Dallas Mavericks. Tim, what's up, man? Thanks for joining us. Hey, fellas. How are you? We're fantastic. The Mavs. Luka Doncic, uh, yourself, all trending on Twitter yesterday uh, <laughs> due to a stellar piece uh, written by you and, and our colleague Sam Amick concerning a potential rift within the Mavericks front office. It's titled Inside the Mavericks Front Office. Mark Cuban's shadow GM is causing a rift with Luka Doncic. What a headline. Shout out to the athletic headline writers for that one. Highly recommend everybody listening and joining us live in the stream team. Seek this article out. Go to theathletic.com slash no dunks to get your subscription for The Athletic if you don't have one, and check this out. So, Tim, this, this, made, this made waves yesterday, and I just want to know, first off, like, when and sort of how did this story start coming together? Like, when did the reporting start on this for you? Yeah, it's something I've been hearing about for, for months now, to be honest. Um, it, it's definitely something that I, I, I knew, you know, it felt like this summer was when it was going to reach a, an inflection point um, and, and kind of a... You know, that this stuff was going to, to, you know, all the dynamics and the through lines of the front office, um, you know, we're going to come to a head mm-hmm. and, you know, matter, no matter what I, I wrote uh, or otherwise. Um, someone asked me, I thought, a really intuitive question yesterday. And it's like, would we still be talking about this 
if the Mavericks, who had that lead in Game 3, were close to pushing off the Clippers, um, you know, if things had just gone slightly different on the game, would we still be talking about that story? Um, you know, if they had uh, gone on and advanced to the second round? Yeah, I think we would. Um, I, I'm almost certain we would. You know, it, it's all stuff that I'd heard and been working on and, and hearing before that. Uh, so, so that's kind of the process. And I'll apologize for my, like, Tatooine-looking space station uh, video. <laughs> uh, I'm on a backup laptop. Uh, had, a, had a laptop malfunction last week that was uh, poorly timed, Ooh, to, say, to say the yeah. least. That's I thought okay. you were going to say your laptop exploded after your Twitter mentions caught on yeah. fire yesterday. What's the fallout been like for you after the article came out? Yeah, I mean, people are going to say what they what they say. You know, I, I've you know the the sourcing of the story is 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 there, and and people should go read it. The one thing that you know I've I've kind of gone back to is that you can look at what happened in in Game Seven against the Clippers when Luka Doncic and you know he had what forty six points and fourteen assists. And you don't need reporting to look at this, you know, look at the, the game not being competitive in the, in the final minute mm-hmm. and say that's an indictment on the front office. You know, it, you don't need reporting to look back over the last 10 decades of the Mavericks and say that's also an indictment on the front office. And there's clearly, you know, something going on there that the team isn't functioning well enough. And you also, I don't think, need reporting to look at Luka and, and to think that he is a superstar in the NBA and in the NBA, superstars want to win. And, you know, that's kind of what the reporting says in the story is that his long term desire, his current desire is to, to remain in Dallas long term. But that could change if the team doesn't start winning. Mm-hmm. And we know how much Luca has won throughout his career. He's happy right now. He's going to sign the Supermax extension. That's what leak sources, you know, have told me. And, and I write it in the article. That said, the clock is ticking. And, you know, it's something that you you have to pay attention to. And it, the time to figure out whatever is wrong or or not working in the front offices now. Tim, uh, you got a lot of engagement on it. Fair enough, too. It was a great article. Uh, but the biggest retweet was from the biggest name and the biggest voice there in the Mavericks uh, front office, Mark Cuban. I mean, what's your relationship like? Did you let him know this article was coming? Did he have some idea it was going to be there? And, and did he, did you, I know you reached out to Harlebob for comment. Did you reach out to Mark Cuban as well prior to uh, printing? Yeah, um, you know, it's the, the typical way that, that people reach out for stories like this is, is to do with the morning of. I, I gave him a few hours. It's, it's you know, uh, I, I did get a comment from him, um, you know, and, and ultimately he, he declined comment otherwise. But, you know, you know, it's it's he's someone I've, I've talked to. And, and, you know, other than that, we'll we'll leave it there <laughs> at the center. <laughs> I mean, of this this rift, this controversy, is, uh, Lee mentioned him there, Bob Volgaris. Now, he's the Mavs Director of Quantitative Research and Development. Uh, NBA sickos out there or Twitter nerds will know him uh, from probably back in the day where he was uh, pretty active on Twitter. He was always on the Bill Simmons podcast. Uh, He was a professional gambler, made a lot of money um, in betting on the NBA and sort of uh, pumping money into figuring out uh, how to bet, I guess is the best way to put it. And, you know, within this article, Tim, you point out that he's become like an influential voice. So how did that sort of become about, how did that happen? Uh, and, and why is he sort of at the center of all of this between of maybe his relationship with the players, mainly Luca, and even Rick Carlisle, which I think is a fascinating part of this, uh, this article where it's like, maybe he's like almost dictating, um, you know, lineups and who should play and stuff like that. But he is the, uh, you know, the, the, the center uh, piece of this article, is he not vulgaris and, and sort of how he deals with the within the organization? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously he is, you know, 
he's in the headline. You know, if, if you if you put Shadow GM in there, that's that's where a lot of the focus yeah. is going to go. Um, I knew that in some ways I view him as as a as a character who shows, you know, these competing interests in the front office um, and shows that, you know, as as one anonymous source says, uh, we had two GMs. And right. to me, in some ways, I even see that as the primary takeaway from the story. But it's definitely true that, you know, a lot of the details I have and, and we're aware, you know, this would be, you know, how it's received are focused around Bob. And, and it, it, it's clear that, you know, he's someone who, you know, had a level of influence over Mark. He was someone he, he talked to, officially joined the team in, in 2018 when he was actually physically around and announced. Uh, but, but his, you know, over time, his, his style or, or his way of communication uh, certainly wore on players um, for, you know, whatever, you know, there's, there's two incidents with Luca that are, that are talked about in the piece um, but it's not either one of those alone that that single-handedly you know spent their relationship or sent it spiraling. It, it had always already been something building from that. And I, you know, there's sources that in the article that say that there's other players who have similar frustrations. And so, you know, all that you know paints a picture of of someone who, you know, perhaps you know when it, when a player looks at Carl, you know, Rick Carlisle and rotations he's dictating, and when they see that as being you know something being dictated to him. Yeah, that's that's going to be a problem in a locker room, um, and and it's going to be something that that affects the team. And so, you know, I think that's that's all in there. That's all in the story. And and you know, I thought it was, you know, it's 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 been an interesting process, just kind of working through and reporting all the various aspects of it for sure. So, Tim Bob Vulgaris was hired in 2018 as the director of quantitative <clears throat> research and development. Two questions off that: his contract expires, you know, at the end of this season. Is part of the the Luca requirement going forward, as far as tinkering the front office, that Vulgaris isn't rehired or resigned. And the second thing, uh, you know, I was very interested in these these sort of analytical hires that are happening, these these shiny hires that are happening, where uh, it's kind of unclear what these people are doing in the front office. Uh, um, Mark Cuban sort of. Uh, hinted that there's a lot of artificial intelligence. There's a model that Bob Vulgaris developed. So the second question with Bob is, have you sort of understood better what he does exactly uh, in the Mavs for office? Yeah, I think, I think for the first one, um, you know, there was a point, uh, the, the second moment with Luca where he was upset. He left with, you know, Luca was upset. Bob left a game early after that uh, Bob kind of stepped into a, a remote role that, you know, as far as it, it seemed or, or as far as I heard was was valuable or had some level of value. Um, I don't know what's going to happen this summer. I, I truly don't. Um, it would be surprising to think that the um, almost shocking that the exact power structure and the way that the front office operates uh, would, would continue to exist the same as it did before the season um, or, or over the past few seasons. But but at the same time, this is a you know, this is a front office and a team just generally where tenures are very established. Uh, Donnie Nelson has been, you know, the, the longtime president of basketball operations. He's been in his role since 2005. And so in, in some ways, I don't think that it's, it's wrong that the Mavericks would bring a, a new voice in in some way. And I think that's what, what Bob was in a lot of ways. He was very analytically minded, um, you know, doing a lot of the same, as far as I understand it, doing a lot of the same work 
um, with that that you see even from blog posts in, in some ways when you're really looking at lineup data and matchup data and then going further with second spectrum stuff and, and other things that aren't fully available even to the public. So, you know, as far as AI goes, I, I, that's that's beyond what, what I have a scope of. But, you know, I, I think generally that the way the Mavericks have been more analytics focused and you've even seen it in Carlisle, who's, who's more willing to talk about this stuff over the past years. Um, famously, he was the... the you know, the guy who said the post-up is not a good play, talking about Chris Dubs Porzingis when inside, inside the NBA criticized, you know, Porzingis for not, just not being a post-up player. So I, I think that all of this combined, you know, there, there's value. You know, this, this wasn't a, to, to me, this wasn't a piece specifically about how Bob came into a front office, that everything was going swimmingly. It's a bigger story than that. And I think the role he played had value. Um, clearly, it wasn't uh, effective in the way that they brought it in and, you know, brought him in. And, and the, just generally that, that, you know, there were clearly competing interests and power lines and through lines throughout this whole thing. So, you know, I think that's probably how I would kind of summarize how, how, the, how the whole situation went down. And I guess we'll just see what happens this summer. Yeah, you talk about uh, like in last year's draft, how Bob kind of made the two uh, picks for them without even really consulting the rest of the team. Now, Luke is obviously a huge part here, but how much of an impact do you think it could have that other people within the organization could almost resign and say, listen, he's got too much power if I'm not going to be listened to, if I'm not going to be allowed to uh, have my work respected? Because it sounds kind of like Bob was like, we're picking him, we're picking him, and, and those were the choices that were made, sort of overruling those other guys, the scouts and the other people, and you know, on the lower level there, that make or do all the research and uh, present that to Donnie or Mark or whoever it is. So, do you feel that maybe some of those people could feel like, you know, what if they're not going to move on from Bob or not, you know, bring him back, then I'm going to go elsewhere and find work? Yeah, I think I think that's an intuitive reading of things. Um, how much Bob himself, his his personality, um, the way he interacts with people just specifically frustrated and rubbed and, and, you know, annoyed people over his tenure. I certainly heard, you know, from, you know, a lot of sources that that was the case. Um, or, you know, but I think, I think the other reading of that is, is just what you said, that, you know, it's that if this person is taking more power and influence to the point that Mark Cuban is listening to him for draft picks when they have an entire scouting network, when they, you know, when they have a, a general manager, the, the team president and Donnie Nelson, who I think is is relatively you know known for his draft uh, prominence or pedigree or or just expertise there, mm-hmm. you know I, I think both can be true. Is that you know as as one source in the story says, um, the most powerful person in the Mavericks organization is Mark Cuban, but the second most is whoever he's listening to. And so mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of competing interest in through lines and influences and you know it, even even still like I feel like you know I think the story does a good job showing the dynamics at play. Um, but, but I feel like there's even, you know, there, it's quite possible there's even, you know, more layers to, you know, just how many people are, are trying to push one way or the other in this front office. And, you know, again, hopefully it's something we see this summer, uh, whether it's through more reporting from me or others or, or just kind of the team announcing new structures and stuff like that. What do you think the Mavericks' number one priority uh, is this offseason? Tim, I mean, either either in the front office or even on the on the floor when it comes to players and, and guys that they should look to acquire and, and trying to build a, a team, an actual team that can go far around this, you know, what appears to be a generational superstar in, in Luka Doncic. What would you do? What if what if you're the Harlebon, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> you right. You've got you've got Cubans here. What are you telling them to do? 
Well, if I'm Bob, then I just make AI figure it out for me. I mean, that, that, that seems like the players. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, in, in some ways, I think you know, still the biggest question for the team is you know revolves around Kristaps Porzingis actually, and he's someone who mm-hmm. wasn't in the piece and it isn't you know somewhere my reporting led me throughout this process. Um, but but I think that's you know in, in many ways the big question looming, and I don't I don't think that they're going to get an answer to it this offseason. Um, it's hard to see, you know, there even being viable trade partners out there um, if that's something they're looking to do. Um, so, you know, there's there's clearly, you know, with the, with the team losing twice in the past two years in the first round, um, you know, there there are valuable, good players on this roster to surround Luca with, but there aren't enough of them. You know, I mentioned Game Seven earlier, and just you know how much Luca did compared to how much the rest of the roster did. You know, clearly there needs to be talent upgrades and improvements. It's something that was talked about a lot, um, you know, at exit interviews when, when the team was was wrapping up to head on vacation. Uh, you know, it's something Rick Carlisle talked about. It's something Donnie talked about. Um, no, no Bob at that one. So uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry to report. Um, but but yeah, you know, I think just bringing more better talented players around Luca. you know, personally, I think the idea of a of a of a guard, a two-way guard who can play off the ball, um, but but also still, you know, take the reins and take the the, the load and the pressure off Luca does seem like a good idea. I, I don't know if he's at a point where he's ready to really share a backcourt, but I think someone like Kyle Lowry could could certainly dictate that and and you know walk that line with someone like Luca. Right. Um, it's something I'd look into. He's also you know a bit older. Uh, I'd have to think about what the what the price tag would be and just how that kind of meshes and, and morphs with all the other moves. Like, I think they also need to bring back Tim Hardaway Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think at this point it would be difficult not to do that, especially looking at what's available on this market. But, yeah, I think those, you know, those, are, those are two names, one on the team, one, one not, that, that makes some sense to me as, as you know, the Mavericks keep trying to build you know, a more sustainable roster around, around Luka. Do you feel like there's any sort of um, optimism at all amongst the Mavericks that, you know, Porzingis actually finished the season this year. He's gone out with a season-ending injury, I think, in every year of his career except for this season. So, theoretically, he'll have a chance to actually train rather than rehab over the summer. We've heard reports that maybe Luca and Chris Epps aren't the best of buddies, but who cares, honestly, as long as you're able to produce on the court together. Do they still think that this matchup or this pairing of these two guys can work? Because, I mean, we all see it out there. Porzingis, the idea of Porzingis is a perfect fit with Doncic, right? But we just haven't seen it alongside Luca yet. Yeah, I love the idea of Porzingis. I love the idea of what, you know, a unicorn can be, why he was promoted that way. Um I'm, I might be one of the few people still a little bit optimistic that it could work, but I think being more real, realistic, it's hard to look at that pairing and it's hard to look at the Mavericks' future and, and really expect and think that, okay, this is, this is for sure going to be the, the duo. Um, you know, in some ways, it even feels like you know, the best-case scenario is Chris Tapps does come out really strong next season to the point that he builds up trade value, you know, mm-hmm. so, the, so the team could go, you know, hopefully find someone with less questions lingering about his concerns. Um, I, I think that the idea of Chris Stapps being a, a 7-3 Clay Thompson um, in a lot of ways where, you know, he is eliminating post-ups and he is eliminating um, even shot creation to a degree. You know, I, I think that's his, his best case scenario. And it's something that he can average 20, 22 points a game doing. Um, you know, I think the one thing holding him back is that 
he's not the shooter Clay Thompson is. You know, mm-hmm. he has a perception of being a mm-hmm. great shooter. And I think Chris Stubbs throughout his career has proven he's more of a good shooter. You know, you look at his his percentages when he's wide open. You know, they're not they're not like a lot of great shooters are like 45, 50%. He's more of a 40% guy, you know, when wide open. Uh, and, and then just generally, you know, has only pushed towards 40% on his, you know, on on all of his three-pointers once in his career. And it was the shortened one when he uh, when he tore his ACL in, in New York. So I think that's one concern with his, with his offense. And the other one, of course, is defense. And, and that definitely slipped this year. But we saw him more active, more engaged, you know, even even in the last few games of the season or, or of the of the playoff series. So I, I think if there is a if there is an optimistic take, that is the KP, that is the player, you know, kind of this seven three player who is literally playing like a shooting guard in a lot of ways and you know, using his off ball movement and in cutting and things he does really well, um, along with maybe a, a slightly higher peak and, and trajectory of his jump shot if he can reach that. And then pairing that with just active defense that does enough, you know, to, to make sure he's not a complete liability, that, mm-hmm. that hopefully he's a small plus. And I think that's the hope in the future with him. Do you think uh, one of the things that kind of stuck out to me is that it almost feels like the Mavericks are kind of caught between two eras here, right? You've got the power structure that's been there for years and years. Donnie Nelson and Rick Carlisle, they won the only title in Mavs history with the biggest superstar in Mavs history and Dirk Nowitzki. Now we've got the next big Mavs superstar in Luka Doncic. Uh, things have changed in the front office, bringing in an analytic guy like Harlebob. So I'm kind of wondering, like, how does Dirk fit into this at this point? Because you mentioned in the piece that Luka kind of angled to get to Dallas. Um, he has a relationship with Dirk. And honestly, Dirk was in a lot of the same scenarios that Luka was in, right? Early in his career, had some playoff disappointments. It took a long time till they finally got that title in 2011. Uh, in today's day and age, it wouldn't be surprising to see a Dirk Nowitzki-like character, the Luka, want to leave after this. Is Dirk in Luca's ear at all being like, look, man, it's tough, but you're still early in your, your, your career. You haven't signed your second deal even yet. There's a lot of time in front of you here. Or is he kind of like, hey, man, it worked out for me. I'm not exactly sure if, if things are the same in 2021 as they were in 2011. The league has changed a lot. How is Luca and Dirk's relationship going to factor into all this? It's definitely a a factor in how Luca feels about Dallas. You know, that's that's something I put in the story, and and it's something that I, I truly, you know, I, I believe and have been told that that Luca does, you know, feel good about this franchise. He has a lot of goodwill. Obviously, there are specific uh, relationships that he has with people in the team uh, that that need to improve or or need to be you know managed or or dealt with in a way that you know doesn't upset him or or continue to frustrate him. But, you know, I, I do think that Dirk is, is, a, is a great factor. I, I think it's too soon to think that, you know, Dirk is in his ear about, you know, what to do next or, or patience or anything like that. You know, Luca is, a, a, is happy, you know, like he is satisfied. He wants to win. You know, he's not happy with losing. Uh, he's never been. And, you know, this is but, – but he's preparing to sign the Supermax contract. I, I don't even think, you know, there's – I didn't report this in the story and, and for good reason. I don't – as far as I know, I don't believe in – Sources say this is not at all what he's trying to do. He's not trying to leverage, you know, his power. You know, he's obviously a, a person that the, the team thinks and frames every decision around. Um, but, you know, if he had tr- if he had been personally wanting to, you know, kind of play play power games himself, like 
why would he say that he was just going to sign the extension on, on at the exit interview and yeah. be like, you know, somebody asked him and he said, uh, you know, I, I think you know what, what the answer is and, you know, did it with a smile. And, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't a situation where he's like, we'll see, we'll see. And, and you know, then then he can come to Mark and, and Mark Cuban and, and talk, you know, like, I want this. I want this player. I want this person gone. I want this person as my coach, etc. Yeah. You know, so so I don't think that's what he's trying to do. I don't think that's the situation he's in. Um, but as it relates to Dirk, like there's only one Dirk, uh, measuring people to Dirk is, is not the, you know, it's, it's impossible. You know, that's, that's not a standard, you know, that's a standard he's set, um, you know, in, in like a different plateau or a different, you know, reality that it, that it just isn't realistic to even expect players to, you know, want to emulate or, or model. And so, you know, where Dirk was patient and where Dirk was someone who waited, um, I think just the reality of, of any superstar, whether it's Luca or not, they'll look at situations and if they're not satisfied with the amount of winning um, with their team um, or, or with the power structure, structures around them that they have to deal with constantly, those are things that will frustrate him and, and they know that they're able to move on to situations that they'll appreciate and enjoy better. Well, it's a fantastic article uh, that you and Sam put together here, Tim. Uh, it's called Inside the Mavericks Front Office, Mark Cuban's Shadow GM is Causing a Rift with Luka Doncic. Again, headline, ugh, spot on. <laughs> Artwork, amazing. And then the words, yeah. even better. Uh, Tim, what's the easiest way for people to uh, to get in touch with you, to, to talk to you, to ask you questions maybe about the article? I assume by way of Twitter, is that right? Yeah, I'd say Twitter's probably easiest, you know. I, I think that's the one. I've got open DMs. People can tweet me. I'm, I'm Tim underscore Cato, so just follow me there. Oh, I'd like to see some of those open DMs right now, Tim. Oh. I'm sure there's, a few, uh, <laughs> sure there's a few angry ones that have come your way, too, in the last I, I just hours. I just make my AI reply to those. <laughs> well, well, Tim, we've kept you long enough. We'll let you go, man. Uh, thank you so much for swinging by on, on such short notice. Uh, we really appreciate it. I've also heard you on, like, three or four other podcasts, uh, and you're bringing it on every single one. So thank you so much, man. <laughs> thank you, guys. All right. Take care, Tim. Oh, fantastic. Go check that out. Go to theathletic.com slash no dunks uh, if you don't have yourself an athletic subscription and uh, and go read that article. And then, well, then you've got an, uh, a subscription. You can read all the articles that you have over at The Athletic, especially in the NBA world that we focus on. Had some other news last night, guys. Rudy Gobert, Ben Simmons, both unanimous selections to the NBA's all-defensive first team uh, for the 2021 season. They were joined by Draymond Green and Giannis at forward, as well as Drew Holiday to round out the backcourt. All defensive second team was led by Bam Adebayo and Kawhi Leonard as your forwards, Joel Embiid as the big man in the middle, and then Jimmy Butler and Matisse Thybul as the two guards. And I will, uh, I'll throw this up there. I should have done it while I was talking there. But there's a look for everybody in the stream team and joining us live or a little bit later on YouTube. So you can look at the numbers. You can dissect them. Tass, does anything jump out at you? Do you think the voters did an okay job? Any uh, questions with this? And I guess you can get into emissions too if you're really upset. But what do you think about the all-defensive teams? Sexy names. Really big, big names here on these all-defensive squads. If you look up and down, I think that's what jumps out to me at first. A lot of big names. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess, I, mean, I, I think it's a really, really, really well-done voting job. Uh, you know, I, you, can, you can parse. I, I think Jimmy Butler, although he has the name again, I think there's a lot of name recognition here. I think Mikel Bridges may have... Sh- uh, you know, done a better job this season in terms of games played because Jimmy missed some time mm-hmm. um, and, and been a better de- defensive player this year. 
but you know, you're asking voters to really do a lot of work to really understand <laughs> who was the better defensive player this year. So I, I think, yeah, I think that would be my one rewrite. Uh, okay. And uh, even though Matisse Thibel didn't play a ton and in, in, in terms of minutes played, you know, on the lower end of the spectrum of guys who've made it historically, uh, he's still so, 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 so good and already developed the name uh, in those minutes. He, he is historically good. So I, I think he is entirely fine there. OK, Lee, any problems with these uh, two all defensive teams? No, we got uh, really good representation though from teams. Two from the Bucks, two from the Heat, and three—sorry, uh, two, uh, three from the Sixers. Yeah. So uh, if you've got a good defensive team, you've lot of, got a lot of good defensive players in there. I just like the fact there's five internationals as well and two Australians. Matisse Thybulle technically oh, qualifies man. for Australia there. So, uh, but overall, yeah, this was one of those ones where it was like, man. The uh, voters seem to have gotten it pretty accurate here. I, I do agree. I thought Jimmy Butler probably got in on a reputation there because I just didn't think he played enough uh, this season. But Some people very... think that's the same with Kawhi too. Still. Yeah, I think so. I think Kawhi, because uh, he's a two-time season. defensive player of the year. He's, Kawhi's like, when he decides to, there's no question yeah. he's one of the best, but he does seem to go through a lot of the season just like, I'm not going to be all defensive Kawhi Leonard yeah. tonight. But uh, when he does lock in, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I really didn't have any complaints. I thought they were all well chosen there. Just great to see Simo in there with uh, the unanimous pick uh, because he was probably, he did finish runner-up, actually, didn't he, for yep. uh, defensive player of the year. So, uh, great to see Simo. Good on you, son. Any observations, uh, with these teams, Trey? I know you're not. You hate defense. I, I feel like bad asking you. <laughs> no, I need to stick up for the small markets here. How come the Lakers and the Knicks don't have any players on these all-defense teams? These are two top five defenses. Nobody's showing up basically in any of the voting. I just thought that's kind of unusual, but yeah. that probably just helps a, a Tom Thibodeau or a Frank Vogel coach of the year kind of case, right? Getting everybody on the same page. And obviously, Anthony Davis probably would have made an all-defense team if he played a little bit more. The other takeaway from this is that big guys are better at defense than small guys. First team has two seven-footers, a small ball five, and a six-foot ten point guard. (laughs) Second team has two more centers. So, uh, if throw in Matisse Thibel's arms, that's maybe another (laughs) seven-footer there. So, yeah, it turns out uh, being big out there helps you play defense. I think Ziller brought this point up in his newsletter this morning, too. This might sort of, uh, you know, in the breakdown of the voting here, where who's getting put in center positions and forward possessions, I'm talking about Joel Embiid. He's not on the All-NBA defensive, excuse me, first team. That might mean he will not be on the All-NBA first team, too, even though you could make him a forward. So Mm. it could be Jokic and Embiid both on your All-NBA first team. But if the voters sort of follow suit like they did here with the All-Defensive teams, maybe we see Embiid as the... uh, all-NBA second team center. Do you know what I'm saying there? Did that make sense to you? Because it barely made any sense to me. Uh, but uh, Ziller did a great See, job of breaking get rid of it down positions. his newsletter. Well, yeah. Get rid of positions yeah. and then we don't have to worry about it. So Yeah. You know. I mean, but it is sort of funny like that Bam is considered a forward. I mean, people were like, well, got to get him in my top 10 defensive guys. So they're like, well, he's a forward. But he's not. I mean, he's a center. No. <laughs> he's really a center on that team. Anyway, uh, yeah, I don't have many qualms with this. There are some like classic like throwaway votes if you want to call them that well that'll left that'll leave you like scratching your head like you know russell westbrook i think got mm-hmm. a vote and there are a couple other names where you're like what you're not you're not watching games like i don't know what you're doing here it does it ultimately matter no because for the most part there's like enough separation when you're building these teams like that your dumb throwaway vote for uh, someone that's definitely not an all defensive player doesn't matter but still i don't know how you feel about that task when people do that that's 
I, I, like what is it? Is it because they're just literally so clueless these voters that are voting for them, or is it because they're they're friends with the age? I don't know what it is. Like, what's the reason? It's not great though. It's not a good look. These dumb throwaway votes, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is either. I, I it's not a good look. I guess I guess the nerds get into it. The this, the NBA sickos get into it. But at the end of the day, does anybody really notice? Nope. No. It eh, do not, not matter. Yeah, it's weird that Russell Westbrook got a vote. I'm seeing that Dennis Schroeder did get a yeah, first team yeah, vote, but right. for the most part, people are seeing this on a TV show and they're getting a graphic and they're seeing 10 names on there and nobody cares that Russell Westbrook got a first team vote. But if you're a sicko, it is pretty weird. Mm. <laughs> wow, did Westbrook get a first team? Or I don't know if he got a first team. Oh, man, God, yeah. that's really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing with the second team because you're like, okay. People I don't even think know, the casual fan doesn't even know we have an all-defensive second team probably. <laughs> first team, uh, that's, that's a little too far. Anyway, let's hear your biggest omissions. Uh, you, yeah, Mikael Bridges is a great one. I think he was like right there. I think he just sort of missed the cut of sneaking in there. But with these things, we said it before, especially all-defensive teams, you got to like, it's the little groundwork. You need that like, you need the sickos to be like, hey, where's Bridges? He's an awesome defender. And that will likely then seep into next year's voting. He'll probably continue to be a good defender. He'll probably become even a better defender. More people will notice. His team's obviously having some success in the Suns going far in the playoffs. And I will like lock it in now. Uh, Mikael Bridges will be on one of the all-defensive teams <laughs> next year. It just, it's seriously, it's sort of just like this little momentum happens and uh, he'll get in there. But Matisse Thybul for barely playing is uh, pretty impressive. Only 20 minutes per game. I think it's the lowest minutes per game played by an all-defensive player ever. All-defensive team player, I should say, Lily. Uh, just pretty, He's a great defender, wild. though. He, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Long-armed, moves his feet well, gets into position well. Like that, that is really like a, uh, a watch him. You've got to watch him to appreciate how good he is at defense. So it is funny that he gets in, and so does Jimmy Butler, because that's the thing. Jimmy is kind of like, he's always a good defender. Just throw him on there. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. But you're right. okay with that with Fiebel? I mean, he doesn't play half the game, yeah, more than yeah. half the game. So, I, I mean, mean, you can see the argument, at least. Like, uh, there are guys absolutely. out there well, he's claiming he's Australian, which was news he to me. He can. So he can I play for Australia. What, yeah, so. okay. No, I, look, I, I think uh, in terms of as a defender, I think he's a great defender um, in that limited time. But does he deserve to be on the all defense for that? Well, that, yes, there's definitely an argument there. But I'm glad to see he got the recognition, at least for when he is out there, because I think he's fantastic as a uh, you know as a perimeter and a movement defender. Like he he rarely he rarely gets sort of caught because he can uh, move so well. So and he's got the long arms which help. But- it's a strange thing, yeah, th- that he plays twenty minutes per game and gets on there. But at the same time, it's not like a an offensive player who has per thirty six numbers who can't play thirty six minutes. Uh, you know, like his numbers would just go up generally. His numbers would just be better. And he is, uh, Seth Part now broke it down. Uh, he is averaging uh, 4% steal rate and 5% block rate. So, uh, you know, he, those, those numbers, he joins a select list of Akeem, David Robinson, Nerlens Noel, Kim Hughes, and Bobby Jones. Uh, like, yeah, Kim guys you don't Hughes. necessarily think of. And the minutes, uh, if he played 82 games, he'd play more than some guys that have made it, like a Tony Allen or Avery Bradley or Andre okay, Kirilenko okay. In, in some seasons. So, yeah, uh, two, he's going to, you know, he averaged two blocks and two steals per 36 wow. minutes. Uh, you know, it would, those numbers would go up if he played, but uh, just got to get a shot and he could play a little bit more. That's all he's going to be working on this offseason. Less of the editing that he worked on in the bubble, which he was really good at. <laughs> he was. He was, he was very good at editing his experience. 
Man, he was really good. Looking but you just want him shooting threes in the offseason, sure. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Trey. I was uh, going to say, good luck keeping Matisse away from making art. Oh, nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, let's take our final break before we get to Tweet of the Night. All right, let's wrap this bad boy up with a little Tweet of the Night. Mmm. Tweet of the Night. Wow. Twitter. Yes, uh, we're playing it uh, pretty fast and loose today because I had a bunch of different options, um, one of which involved uh, all of the Batmans through history and whether or not uh, they did a particular sex act. You can check my Twitter feed for that one. That's from a uh, from at Whitney Puppy. But you know what? We're running long. And yeah. uh, this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go way back. This is a random tweet from 2012 from a guy named David Burge. <laughs> what? And it says, Soft Focus Lens Hall of Fame. Penthouse, the magazine, from 1974 to 78. Dynasty era, Linda Evans. Soap opera flashback scenes, Barbara Walters and Bob Costas. I, he, he forgot Sybil Shepard, but I would like to add one more okay. to the, uh, the Hall of Fame. That's our very own Tim Cato, <laughs> who was, uh, unfortunately, he was on a, a borrowed laptop, a backup laptop. He apologized for it uh, over Slack after the show. Um, shout out to Tim. It was a great segment. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's very, um, oh, what's the word? It's ethereal where, it, yeah. where he is. It's, uh, it's kind of cool. But uh, looking forward to having him back on the show with uh, a, a new webcam. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I was wondering where you were going with that tweet. But you brought it all okay. together, Jamie. You're a master at it. Uh, yeah, just a quick, quick, quick look ahead to tonight's Game 5. Only one game on tonight, guys. Wild Bucks Nets. Pivotal game. Kyrie Onogo, Lele, James Harden upgraded from out to doubtful. At least he was at the start of this show. I don't know what's happened in the last uh, hour or so. But uh, who do you have winning tonight's game? What can we expect from uh, Kevin Durant? How quickly will P.J. Tucker be in foul trouble in this one? That's what everybody wants to know. Uh, this is a monster game, really, for the Bucks because uh, they may not get a better chance to put the uh, nets on the ropes. I mean, yeah. if James Harden doesn't play then you think he's probably a certainty to play game six if the Bucks win tonight, I would guess. So Milwaukee will not get a better chance to sort of recover from what was a disastrous first two games. And I think uh, if we have downhill Giannis attacking the paint, going at the uh, at the, the sort of weak interior there of the Nets, I think that's the best chance for the Bucks to win. But Kevin Durant, do we see a potential LeBron game six against the Buc- uh, the Celtics from 2012 game? Does he just decide, listen, I have to do it all tonight? Almost play point forward Kevin Durant, you know, score 40, maybe get uh, a dozen assists or so and hope some guys like, uh, you know, Joe Harris hits threes. Uh, what's his name? Um uh, got Mike James, Mike, Mike James. James. Oh, okay. my God, Mike James to hit some threes. I mean, I think that if I'm Steve Nash, I'm probably like, Kevin, just play point forward Kevin Durant and see if they can stop you because uh, I don't think P.J. Tucker can run with you. I think when it's a physical sort of like uh, encounter, that's P.J.'s best chance to slow him down. Uh, run a ton of screens and just see if we can get a, a freakish Kevin Durant performance because I think they need that because Joe Harris is probably their second best player right now. He hasn't had a great series. They need mm-hmm. someone to get going. So, um, But again, I think it, the emphasis is entirely on Milwaukee tonight. I yeah. think you're basically at full strength. You have to go out there and uh, and, and, and put the put the net in a position where they can be eliminated uh, for the game six in Milwaukee. If I'm Steve Nash, and come on, 
close enough, right? Uh, I would play. <laughs> I would play myself tonight. Is he? Mm. Can he legally do that if there's no Kyrie and Harden? Can Steve Nash just insert himself uh, into the starting lineup, play some uh, point guard minutes, you know, alleviate some of the pressure there off KD? Uh, but Tass, you're on record. You think the Nets can still win this game? Uh, you said that with with the with the idea that there will be no Kyrie. And no Harden. Again, Harden is a possibility here as we get closer and closer. But uh, do you still believe that? Is, is uh, we going to see something special here from KD? That's what it feels like you're thinking. Yeah, definitely. They won four of five games when Kevin Durant played solo this season without James Harden and uh, Kyrie Irving. So they know how to play. They have a bunch of guys to play around him. Joe Harris has had two bad games in a row. I think they're going to look for him early and often. Kyrie, Eric, I'm sorry, Kevin Durant, by his standards, has had two bad games in a row. And, and so I expect, yeah, this team to really rally around and play at home. Again, that's really important. Um, I, I think uh, James Harden is going to test that hamstring pregame, as Adrian Wojnarowski reported, and give it a go and see how it feels. Mm-hmm. That's a testament to you know James Harden being a throwback guy, trying to play every single game if he's not injured. Uh, doubtful, but still going to go out there and, and and give it his all and at least be you know, if he is out there, uh, you know, a, a gravity puller, everybody will be looking at him on the floor. And that's the problem when it's, you know, Kevin Durant and Joe Harris and uh, all the other guys on those uh, slim, slim contracts. Uh, it's everybody looking at KD and, and loading up on him. But uh, the fact that they had that second half with just Kevin Durant and, and no Kyrie Irving and James Harden in game four, I think gave him a little, uh, little test for what's going to happen here. And uh, those guys, I think, we're, they're going to make shots at home. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that they get everybody involved and uh, the home court gets them to the finish line in this one. Yeah, the stream team dropping the uh, Durant over-under tonight, TK, at 45.5. Would you go over or under if that was the actual line? That's the stream team's line for Kevin Durant tonight. I'm going under, but I would need to get uh, a line as well on assists because I'm probably going over on assists. I think KD could still go for maybe a 40 and uh, maybe something like 10 assists. So give me a line of eight and a half assists. I'm going over because the Nets got to hit some threes because no doubt the Bucs are going to be loading up on Giannis. P.J. Tucker will get the assignment, but there's a little bit more lingering wiggle room for Giannis to be hanging around the rim and for Brooke Lopez to be hanging around the rim. So it's going to be on Jeff and Joe and Mike (laughs) to make some threes out here. Landry's got to make some threes. I think they only made 18 total playing in Milwaukee. And obviously the Nets are one of the best offensive teams that we've seen. Usually that's with a second superstar alongside him. Maybe that's James Harden. And maybe James Harden just becomes a spot up shooter tonight, which would help the the Nets immensely. So give me the under on points, the over on assists for Kevin Durant. It feels like there's equal amounts of pressure on both teams here, yeah. right? Like we got to see, we're, everybody's expecting a LeBron style game from Kevin Durant, but like Lee's saying, the Bucks almost have to win this one, especially if Harden isn't able to go. And even if he is, he's going to be a little bit compromised. So you got to think that uh, from a momentum standpoint and from a health standpoint, the Bucks have the upper hand here, but if they go into, uh, uh, Brooklyn and lose this one to a to an undermanned Nets team. People are going to be ready to say the Bucks are going home again. Very excited for Game Five tonight. Uh, Bucks Nets. I believe it's an eight thirty p.m. Eastern start, and uh, we'll figure out what that actually means as we get closer to it, and we'll find out whether or not Harden's actually playing, whether he gives that hamstring a go. Thank you so much to Tim Cato for coming on the show again. Go check out that article uh, inside the uh, the Mavericks front office. There, there it is. We're showing the stream team now. Go to theathletic.com slash no dunks to get your athletic subscription if you don't already 
Subscribe to No Dunks on YouTube. Send in your questions and comments for Beach Step and Still, no dunks at theathletic.com or tweet them in at No Dunks Inc. And we'll be back tomorrow with, uh, well, two shows because we'll have the morning show recapping tonight's game and any other NBA news, and then we'll hit the beach later in the afternoon. Clipper Bros. You heard it here first. Have a great time. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. And remember, every time I see Tim Cato's name, I think Calvin Cato. Remember Calvin Cato? I do. I do. Yes. Me too. Embrace the day, people. You could stay. Every day And I'd be happy Every minute